1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we talk with a bumblebee researcher about her work training dogs
2: to work in conservation.
3: Dogs are really an indispensable tool for scientists, and it's really exciting that they're being used more and more.
2: Plus, we speak with an Olympic gymnast from Arvada about his road to the Tokyo Games.
1: And we get an update on the state of Colorado's rafting industry.
2: That and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole.
1: And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Colorado, like most other states, is seeing COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations spike almost entirely among people who aren't vaccinated. In the wake of that, some businesses and organizations are imposing strict mask and vaccine requirements for workers and vendors. This week, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock announced that all city employees, hospital workers, and school staff will need to be vaccinated.
2: And now some concert goers will need to show they've been vaccinated before they can check out their favorite bands. Z2 Entertainment, which operates a handful of venues along the Front Range, announced a new policy this week that will take effect this Saturday. Lucas High is a reporter for Biz West, and he joins us now with more on this announcement. Hi, Lucas.
4: Thank you so much for having
2: me. Let's start with the nuts and bolts of this announcement by Z2 Entertainment. What are the requirements and what venues are covered by them?
4: Z2 is the owner and operator of the Boulder Theater in Boulder, uh, as well as the Fox Theater, which is also in Boulder, and uh, the Aggie Theater uh, in Fort Collins. They announced this week uh, that starting on August 7th, um, you know, folks who attend their concerts are, are going to have to show proof of vaccination. So that can be you know, the, the actual physical vaccination card. Or you're, you're welcome to take a photo of your card on your phone and, and just show them uh, show the folks at the ticket taking desk, uh, your, your phone. or you have the option of, uh, of showing them a negative uh, COVID test that is uh, uh, less than 72 hours old. They, they've yet to implement any mask mandates. However, their employees will ma- wear masks. Uh, so the employees of the venues, uh, they're all vaccinated and will wear masks. Um, and, but they are asking folks, um, you know, if they're going to be in tight quarters, which is you know, often the case, uh, you know, at, at concerts, uh, they, they would love it if you would wear a mask.
2: Does this mean venues won't have to adhere to uh, some of the strict social distancing we saw last year? I mean, I know that really limited their capacity.
4: These venue operators are really, really hoping we can kind of turn the tide uh, on these uh, recent spikes and, uh, you know, the Delta variant. Last year was was really really tough for these particular businesses, concert venues, and you know comedy shit clubs and things like that. You know we're devastated by uh, by the um, shutdowns as well as the the capacity restrictions because you take a uh, the Boulder Theater it's you know about a thousand seats. In order to meet the six foot social distancing requirements, uh, you're ultimately in a situation where you're only able to get around a hundred a uh, hundred people in, and that makes for not really a very fun concert and it makes for a situation that's not really kind of economically feasible for the owners of these uh, these venues.
2: What was the impact in terms of, you know, layoffs and things like that for Z2 and, and companies like it?
4: I talked to uh, Cheryl Ligori, She's the CEO of Z2. And she said that they had to lay off, you know, about 90 percent of it, uh, of their workforce across, you know, all of their venues. So only recently, since the, the vaccine rollout and uh, the, the rollback of some of the really strict uh, social distancing and, and, and masking requirements, have they been able to start bringing folks back on? for indoor venues, the summertime is, is kind of a slow season, uh, you know, a lot of concerts are outdoors during the summertime, but uh, you know, they really pick up once the fall rolls around and, 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 the venues that we're talking about are both in college towns whether it be boulder and or fort collins and the students will be back in school this is a perfect opportunity for uh venues to really kind of you know get their balance sheets right uh, you know after a really tough year the, the concern is that if we move backwards and and cases continue to go up and, and vaccination rates stagnate they might not be able to take advantage of it and, and even worse they may have to go through uh you know additional shutdowns and cheryl the uh with with c2 was was telling me that uh, you know that's going to be Kind of a you know death knell for for organizations like hers.
2: I'm wondering how these new rules are going over with prospective concert goers and with the staff at these venues. So from talking
4: to the to the folks at, at Z2, um, you know the, most of most of the tenor of the comments that they've received uh, have been positive, especially from from staff. You know if you're if you're a staffer at one of these venues, you know you're probably going to come into close contact with. Hundreds, of, if if not more, uh, you know, people on a, on a given night. So, you know, for for staffers, this is this is something that uh, was really important for them, and apparently is going over quite well with the folks uh, who work for Z2. Uh, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but um, you know, if you if you're a ticket holder. Uh, and for whatever reason you you either can't or don't want to or or refuse to to vaccinate or to get a a negative COVID test, you can receive a a, a refund. So the Boulder Theater, the the Aggie, they're, they're not going to keep your money if you know if you don't want to get vaccinated. They they will refund it. Um, however, they will likely be pretty strict about uh, checking vaccination cards and things like that because they don't want to be super spreaders. For the most part, local uh, and state leaders ha- have kind of taken a hands-off approach to dictating to private businesses whether or not they need to require a vaccination. So, so the onus really falls on these business owners, and it's a it's a tough call because, you know, obviously, you don't want to alienate any of your customer base, but you kind of have to make the decision that's best for for your organization. And that seems like uh, that seems like what the folks at Z two have done.
2: We know there was federal money earmarked last year for the purpose of helping out art and music spaces who were just being crushed. Do we know if that money moved the needle at all with with helping out these venues?
4: It's hard to say. Obviously it helped because because anything's better than nothing and for for many months these these businesses were sitting vacant, you know, they couldn't hold concerts for, you know, nearly a year. Um so you know, anything's better than nothing, but like I mentioned, you're not really moving the needle much if you're laying off or if you're forced to lay off 90 percent of your workforce. So people appreciate uh, you know any support, but uh, definitely not a long term solution to uh, to th- this this industry's issues.
2: Lucas High is a reporter with BizWest. You will find a link to his reporting on this at our website dot KUNC.org. Lucas, thank you so much for talking with us.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: The 2020 Olympics are about to wrap up, but athletes from the state of Colorado are going out with a splash. Of the 613 athletes who went to Tokyo representing the United States, more than 30 are from Colorado. This makes Colorado the state with the third highest number of competitors, just behind California and Florida.
2: But while the state can boast multiple athletes competing in sports such as track and field, cycling, and shooting, there was only one who took the stage for gymnastics. Yol Moldauer is an artistic gymnast who represented the U.S. at the Tokyo Olympics. The 24-year-old Arvada local placed sixth in the men's floor final and is also the 2017 U.S. national all-around champion. He spoke with Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber about his first Olympic experience, how he got here, and what the future may hold.
5: These are your first Olympic Games, so tell us a bit about your experience so far.
0: Well, considering COVID, it's a little different this year. As a little kid, I imagine walking into huge stadiums, meeting a bunch of new athletes, and competing with thousands of fans in the audience. But this year, there's no one in the audience kind of trapped in our hotel, but just to be here and represent my country, it's an honor and I'm so excited I'm finally here.
5: How has COVID impacted the Olympics for you and your journey to get here?
0: My journey to get here was pretty pretty crazy, actually. I remember back when COVID first hit in March, we were about a couple months from the Olympic trials and everything shut down. I had no gym to train at. So I started training in my garage and I trained in my garage for about three months, whether it was cold or hot. But once things opened back up, I decided to move back to my hometown in Arvada and train at my gym where it all began. And I trained there throughout this whole year and I finally made it here. And now that I'm here, we have to take a COVID test every single day. We're not staying in the Olympic Village with the other athletes. I haven't gotten to meet much athletes, and I haven't gotten to watch you know the sports I've always wanted to. But you have to understand that this Olympic Games is an unusual Olympics, but it's going to go down in the history books as one of the most craziest Olympics that ever took place, and to be able to say that I was part of that, it's really special to me, and I know that I couldn't be here without my family, coaches, or teammates.
5: You grew up on a farm, I'm curious how the work ethic you learned there may have played a role in your road to the Olympics.
0: I think it plays a huge role. You know, it taught me how to be on time. It taught me how to work as a team. It taught me not to be lazy. That I mean, when you think about running a farm, it's not like you can just, you know, sleep in and skip feeding the animals or putting off work because you don't want to do it. These animals depend on you, too. So... It's definitely taught me a bunch of responsibility. And with my siblings, you know, it was a lot of teamwork. I would be scooping the poo. My sisters would be dragging the trailer. We'd stack the hay with my father and mother. It was this whole system that I honestly just enjoyed because I loved being outside. But the older I got, I thought about it more and more. And it just made me realize how much the farm did for me and perspectives of what work ethic is.
5: Athlete mental health is a big part of the conversation this year. Can you give us a bit of insight into the mental health challenges for Olympic athletes and what can be done to better support them?
0: You know, mental health is not just a huge part in sports, but just in general life. And once you understand what these athletes are going through day in and day out, you just have to be understanding no matter if they're the best or if they're just getting started. At the end of the day, we're human beings. And when you think about the olympic stress itself it's the biggest event in the world for sports in the back of your head no matter how mentally strong you are things can get to you and the pressure is real and you just have to be understanding no matter who it is no matter what they've done at the end of the day we're all just humans and i think that the mental health side of sports is just being more noticed but it's been a problem for a long time and That's probably a good sign seeing that athletes are opening up about their problems because it means that society is more accepting to it.
5: I think a lot of people might not realize how much of a team the gymnasts are. Tell us a bit about the team dynamic on Team USA and what those relationships are like.
0: My approach for gymnastics, it's always about the team. Once you get to the national team and you're going out competing for the country, you have to put it as a team sport, no matter if you're with your teammates or not day in and day out because at the end of the day when you step onto that podium you've got three or four other guys with you that you're depending on to do well so when i think about the team i compete better i train better i do better and it's a sticky situation because like you said we compete against each other at times but you know that's just part of sports is that you have to be able to switch your mindsets for the team for yourself There's nothing more satisfying than knowing that you did something as a group than alone. So, you know, the dynamic of the team is amazing. The guys here, they're like my best friends. Hopefully someday they'd be at my wedding. So it definitely builds that relationship and bond that you just want to do this all for each other.
5: Can we expect another Olympic appearance on your horizon?
0: We have world championships in October, which I'm going to train for, but I want to go till 2028. So this is honestly just the beginning for me. I want to go till 2028 because it's in Los Angeles, and I think it'd be pretty badass to say you retired in your home country.
5: Olympic gymnast and Colorado local Yul Moldauer. Yul, thank you so much for talking with us today, and congratulations on your Olympic journey.
0: Seriously, thank you so much for having me.
1: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Rafting is one of the most popular outdoor activities in Colorado during the summer months. In a typical 11-week season, over half a million people use commercial rafting companies to travel down sections of Colorado's rivers, contributing hundreds of millions of dollars to the local economy. But operations were impacted by COVID-19 in 2020, and the industry at large has faced some tough challenges, though this year things seem to be doing much better.
2: David Koslow is executive director of the Colorado River Outfitters Association. That's a trade organization representing professional river rafting outfitters throughout the state. He spoke with KUNC's Maxine Spire about how the industry is doing. Did the pandemic affect last year's season?
6: We ran boats with lesser number of people per boat because of social distancing. So we had less less capacity and less numbers. However, because school started, much later for many uh, students, people extended their vacations. So our August ended up help making up for some of the early business we lost in early June before we had our protocols in place and were allowed to raft. So although last year we took a hit as an industry, it's a pretty resilient group of outfitters, and they were, they were able to do what they need to do to stay alive and to pay their staff, et cetera.
5: So, how is this
0: season compared? Is it the bounce back that outfitters were looking for?
6: <laughs> it's very much the bounce back we were looking for. I've talked to a number of outfitters just in the last two weeks, and many outfitters say their demand far exceeds expectation, and the demand exceeds some people's capacity. They, they don't have enough staff and uh, equipment. Let's say you can take two hundred in a day. Well. They're able to do that, and they're still turning away another 50 people. So it's been a very good season in terms of demand. And water levels, although we were dry on the West Slope, water levels are such that it allowed us to run and to continue to run. We think that this season will prove to be one of our better seasons of the last decade.
0: I know the Colorado River through Glenwood Canyon is a pretty popular stretch. How have the highway closures impacted the local outfitters there?
6: Well, those local outfitters have been affected, although, again, resourceful. So if you wanted to go rafting in Glenwood and called an outfitter, they would either take you above Glenwood on that stretch, say, around Doxero. They would take you on that, or you would go west of Glenwood somewhat, and you'd put in there and go down. Or some outfitters also run the Arkansas River and they would encourage you to go with them down the Arkansas River, say, Buena Vista area. So even though they've been impacted, they haven't stopped rafting, they've continued to take customers, their demand's strong. So people seem to be be, uh, wanting to really go and they're willing to uh, accommodate as outfitters accommodate.
0: You mentioned that a lot of rafting outfitters have been really resilient Looking at closures from things like wildfires or looking at the drought on the Western Slope, are outfitters worried and preparing for long-term changes?
6: Well, I don't know if they're long-term. People who've been in the business for decades, there's always some. Now, you may have a, you may have a year that's just ideal for you, but the next year it's super high water for so long, or it's super low water for so long, or the water's up there, but uh, irrigator uh, folks aren't calling for releases of water yet because the prairie is so wet. There's always something. There's fire. There's economic downturns like we experienced in 7, 8, 9. So there's always something. When you're running a seasonal business, you learn to prepare for those things. You always try to have alternatives that you can do, such as like when Glenwood, what's the alternative? If you can't do the Shoshone run, that's quite popular will go east or west. Those who haven't learned to accommodate, you know, have probably given up their business or moved it on to somebody else. But most outfitters can figure it out and do.
1: David Koslow is the executive director of the Colorado River Outfitters Association. He was speaking with KUNC's Maxine Spire.
2: As bumblebee populations decline, researchers are innovating new ways to find and collect information about them, and a bumblebee-sniffing dog named Darwin is hot on
1: the case. Darwin is trained in conservation detection and he's the only conservation dog in the country specializing in bees. He belongs to Jacqueline Staub, bumblebee researcher of Boone, North Carolina. Jacqueline has been collecting data on alpine bumblebees in Summit County for the past five years and recently brought Darwin along for the first time. She's with us now to talk about her work as well as Darwin's and what the data they collect reveals about the lives of bumblebees. Jacqueline, welcome to Colorado Edition.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So tell us about how you and darwin came to work together researching bees
3: in 2018 i was in grad school and i saw a paper out of england and the department of defense trained a bumblebee detection dog to find bumblebees and bumblebee nests so i was really inspired by that and i said why don't we have one in the united states that's how the whole idea came to be
1: You said this was in grad school. Tell us about what you were working on then.
3: So for my graduate school project at Appalachian State University, which I'm still working on finishing my master's thesis, we are focusing on bumblebee nesting and training a detection dog to find and locate bumblebee nest was basically my project.
1: I'm curious about that training process and How did you know that Darwin was the right dog for the job?
3: That was actually kind of a gamble. I know a lot more now than I did when I started. There's a lot of information out there about detection dogs and the traits they need and things that would make them successful, such as really high drive. I originally looked at over 800 rescue dogs and tested a lot of them for the traits I needed in a dog, and I couldn't find one with the right characteristics. So that's when I started looking for purebreds. I came across the German Shorthaired Pointers. They're really agile dogs. Really great for a lot of stuff, very high drive. The next step was finding a breeder, a good breeder with uh, dogs with working characteristics. And then I also, once I narrowed it down to the breeder and the litter, I did something called the Volhard Puppy Aptitude Test, which is just a little test you can do. It has different segments, eight segments. And one of them is like you open up an umbrella in front of the puppy and you kind of want it to go over and explore it, sniff it a little bit, but you don't want it to run away or attack it. So like that's an example of the kind of like aptitude test it was.
1: Dogs have been working alongside humans for like centuries, but I haven't really heard of a lot of dogs assisting in like research like this. How useful is the data that dogs get? Or I guess, how do you use the data that Darwin comes across?
3: I think- People today sometimes forget just how useful dogs are and how just like evolutionarily we've had them for so long and we've been able to get really specific traits out of them. The first detection dogs used for insects were used in 1976 to locate gypsy moth egg masses. And since then, they've been used to find other social insects like termites, as we know, red ants, bumblebees now. So a third of a dog's brain is controlled by their olfactory senses. They have really amazing abilities to find things and smell things, and they can also break down compound odors into their specific scents. Some of the other things dogs do, they're actually detection dogs that help researchers analyze humpback whale diets. They stand on the bow of boats and lead researchers to their feces. They are able to get more dietary information for the whales and stuff. They also do that with all kinds of animals. So frogs are really an indispensable tool for scientists. And it's really exciting that they're being used more and more.
1: I understand that Summit County, Colorado is just one stop on your research trail. Where else do you and Darwin go?
3: We are from North Carolina. So we do, we have done some surveys out there and we're continuing to do surveys out there. Despite their importance as Keystone pollinators in many habitats, we don't know that much about bumblebee nesting ecology really anywhere. With these species worldwide in decline, studying their nesting ecology is really important for protecting their habitat.
1: When you go out to look for their habitats for these nestings and these other parts, what are you two looking for exactly?
3: What we're looking for is the actual bumblebee nests. Bumblebees make nests similar to honeybees, but they don't actually store honey. So we're Darwin's trained to find the wax, the brood, and the feces. That's what the scents he's been trained on.
1: Can you describe what Darwin looks like when he's in action? Do you take him off the leash and does he kind of just sniff like a dog or is it something more momentous than that?
3: Dogs have personalities and some days they have on days, some days they want to go really fast. So most of the time when he's is a game he is off leash and i just and he sticks around me i kind of pace him he looks to me and make sure he doesn't get too far away i sort of pace him and we kind of do different search patterns based on the environment where we are like scent is really interesting Um, it travels different directions it stays in clouds depending on the heat temperature humidity so we also have to factor that into our search strategy as i was saying like sometimes he just really wants to go really fast and since it's such a delicate light smell you have to slow him down so sometimes i do put him on a leash just to remind him that he needs to slow down a little bit and check more intensively but usually he does it fine on his own off leash
1: so we've talked a lot about darwin but i also want to talk about the overall bee situation what are the bumblebee numbers looking like this year
3: A third of our species that are native to North America are in decline right now. More generalist species like lower elevation species are actually gaining in number, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Bumblebees have different preferences and there's different species of bumblebees and they have different species preferences as to what flowers they pollinate, as to where they like to nest, et cetera. So it's important to maintain Bumblebee diversity to maintain the plant diversity.
1: What do you see the next couple of years of research looking like for you? Where do you see the winds going? And do you have any new ideas for Darwin or conservation dogs?
3: The sky's the limit for us. Just this summer, we started a nonprofit called the Bee Conservation Initiative, which will be working to conserve precious native pollinators all over. We do plan to go internationally eventually and help other people find their native bees. Also, Darwin is learning how to find overwintering bumblebees, which is that crucial third part. In addition to preserving where they like to nest, we also need to preserve land where they like to overwinter. So in addition to all of that, I have another dog coming down the mill soon, another detection dog. So this was our first summer, so we also learned a lot of new things. And so I've got a lot of new ideas for training methods. We're just really excited. One more thing, since not a lot is known about bumblebee nesting, we could really use everyone's help. So you can find us at darwinthebeaddog.com or Darwin the Bee Dog basically on any social media. And if you have any information about bumblebee nests or bumblebee nesting that you think that would be interesting, or you know the location of nest. We'd really love that data so we can start to fill in the gaps.
1: Jacqueline Staub is a bumblebee researcher. She lives in Boone, North Carolina. Jacqueline, thanks for talking with us. Thanks so much.
2: That's our show for today. Over the next week, the night skies over Colorado will be full of shooting stars, a part of the annual Perseid meteor shower. On the next Colorado Edition, we'll explain what's going on and what to look for. I'm Aaron O'Toole.
1: And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
2: Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.